Morning, church. Thank you. Uh, I just, uh, we love to have a lot of, a lot of fun, and we have good relationships going on on the leadership level with our elders, and I just want to thank Jeff, and you, you need to know the excellent leadership that Jeff is giving to the board, and uh, God has gifted him, and he's wise, and just so helpful to have such a, a, a strong but even-keeled chairman, and uh, he needs to be with me around, so I was just, uh, thank you, Jeff. We appreciate you. Well, if you've been, come here for the first time and you're expecting Christmas message, uh, I'm sorry I'm going to disappoint you because uh, we've been in a series on 1 Thessalonians, and this is the last Sunday. We finish our series today. Uh, next Sunday, we begin a series called Comfort and Joy. It's a series you can bring your friends to. It's a Christmas series, and there'll be that one. And just to bring clarity so there's no a misunderstanding, the Christmas Eve services, you can choose one or the other. They're not different, okay? I know in our history we've done different services, uh, but morning and evening will be the same. Again, just a way to bless our teams and uh, not make the Christmas season just so uh, intense for all of them and for you. So we encourage you, bring friends, bring family. This will be a great time. Uh, starting next Sunday. Well, today we focus on peace within the church, within the community of faith as we wait until the Lord's return. And um, again, we started this series talking about the whole story, and the whole story isn't just about Jesus coming in a manger, and it's not even just Jesus dying on a cross or resurrecting from the dead. The story continues with his present reign and the fact that he is coming again where he will right every wrong and justice will prevail, where he will resurrect the dead. In Christ, we will be given new bodies, where he will establish, I mean, judgment will happen. He will establish the new heaven and the new earth for eternity, and we're, we will get to spend eternity with him. So, uh, the big picture outcome today is, we, is that his church is to live in holiness and peace as we hope in Christ's return. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to build our, our application and work through the text, okay? And so let's buckle up and let's get at it. We're going to be talking today about <clears throat> peaceful church life while waiting for Christ's return. And I need to just give a disclaimer here. This was the next one in this series. Um, it's not like we're suddenly trying to do anything to maneuver or manipulate you. It's just this, the text is there, just like every single week it's been there. That's the beauty of working through books of the Scripture is you have to face it. It's there. So please understand, and I'm sure when we get into our first verse, you'll know what I'm talking about. Just please understand there's no uh, hidden motivations here. But peaceful life within the church, especially in these days while we wait, the first thing in our application that Paul is saying to the Thessalonian church and by implication us as we now receive and live according to the scriptures is this, that our overseers will take their calling seriously. When we talk about overseers, what we're talking about are in particular, now in that context it would be overseers, bishops, elders, the presbyteros, those who are giving uh, senior leadership to the church 
In our context here, it would be speaking of our elders, our pastoral staff, and by association in our uh, governance structure within the Christian Missionary Alliance, our district superintendent. Just so you're aware. So this is who we're talking about. And to live peacefully... First of all, those who are leaders in the church, and I'm speaking to myself, us pastors, and our elders right now, and if Curtis Peters was here, our district superintendent, here's what the scripture says. Uh, now, I'm, I know this is going to, um, we're going to look at the same scripture verses, two verses, one from the lenses of speaking to our leaders then we'll look at those same verses looking to the response of people, okay? So first of all, for our leaders who should take their role and their ministry seriously, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who, get this phrase, labor among you, over, who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, Esteem them highly because, in love because of their work. So those who labor among you. Paul is speaking again is about the overseers, elders of the church in Thessalonica. Those who have been identified, appointed, entrusted with overseeing, shepherding, and teaching of the church. The word labor is a hard, demanding, exhausting word because of the spiritual and emotional dynamics. Sometimes people think that church leadership is a, is a soft job. I remember one pastor in particular who was, at, he was leading a large church and uh, some business guy came up to him after the service and said, hey, nice talk. Do you have a real job during the week? And he said, well, yeah, I, 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 it's, it's this. Anyways, so what do, what do elders do? What do the overseers, pastors, what are we to do? Besides the continual effort of growing in character, understanding the word, battling in prayer, the work of being a church overseer has some very unique spiritual gifts and demands, insights, and carries pressures that many people don't understand. Their general task is in a general way of saying it, according to 1 Peter 5, is to give oversight to the ministry or to shepherd the flock. They are to lead with prayer, not neglecting it, not neglecting the word, but to ensure that people are being ministered to and receiving appropriate help while they focus on the issue of prayer and word. Select elders, some within the oversight community, are called to give themselves to preach and teach, being entrusted with the gospel, who are exhorted to work hard at preaching and teaching, 1 Timothy 5, 7. To be a workman who correctly handles the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. And to ready to preach the word at any time, in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, 2 Timothy 4. All elders and overseers or pastors are to be vigilant against false teaching and correct it. Titus 1 verse 5 through 16. Contrary to popular opinion, people in the church can't believe whatever they want to. Now, there's latitude when we agree on the essentials, and part of it, we faced it in this series, haven't we? What happens at the end times? Well, we know that there's a core truth that absolutely every single Christian believes, that Christ is returning physically, visually. There's a judgment coming. There's a resurrection of the dead. He will establish the new heavens and the new earth forever. 
We know certain things, there's a few more, but we agree on that. There's some latitude around the non-essentials. But when it comes to actually the true faith about the nature of Scripture, of Christ, the Trinity, these things, these are absolutely essential that we rally around, and the elders and pastors are supposed to be vigilant in protecting the church from false teaching. They are to go and anoint and pray over the the sick with faith when they're asked to, James 5, to admonish members whose lives are out of sync with the commands of Christ, to assist in the last stages of unresolved conflict within the church, carrying out church discipline, and only, if absolutely necessary, the undesired step of actually excommunicating someone. Now, in our culture, we think how in the world, it's very clear many times in the Scripture, that when someone is living in an absolutely disruptive, morally wrong, and is pushing and dividing the congregation, the elders are supposed to step in and to address that person with the intent to restore them. And if they absolutely rebelliously refuse, they're actually commanded in the Scripture in a number of places that, they are to, that those people are not to be allowed to be a part of the community of faith. Contrary to the values of Canada, where the individual has the highest rights, in the scripture, in the kingdom of God, in his alternative community called the church, the whole is more important. Boy, it's quiet in here. So they labor. Can you get a sense of the, of the, the weight of their work? It's labor sometimes. And I've watched our elders in, in, in meetings at night, on the weekends, and just giving themselves fully. I've watched them in prayer. I've been a part of their prayer circles, and the passion with which they pray for you and the church is inspiring to me. It says, those who are over you in the Lord, those who have been placed in leadership to watch over the flock. See, over... Anyways, they're ethical and uh, doctrinal guardians of the church, adjudicating what is final authoritative teaching and administering final moral authority in the church. So they are to do this in the Lord. They are over you in the Lord commissioned by Christ to carry out this work. And as they do, they are to be dominated by Christ's presence, leading according to his will and his manner. As one uh, commentator, Beale, says this, elders are not autonomous sovereigns, but representatives of Jesus' oversight. So how they carry out their function is to be in alignment with Jesus, his teaching, and his kingdom. While not perfect, nor can they model perfection, they must model growth. Growth in Christ-like character, growth growth in maturity of faith, growth in biblical understanding. The last thing he says to them is that they, they actually admonish, they admonish you 
It means to put in the mind or to warn. It carries this idea of coming alongside and confronting a sinful habit or warning people against bad behavior. And when God's laws are broken, when his name is misrepresented, or when the purity of his church is threatened, pastors, elders, overseers have a responsibility for the sake of the health of the entire body to speak the truth. They've been giving this mandate, and they have to have courage to confront sin and correct behavior. These tasks are challenging and demanding, and you have to have a sense of calling. In two other passages in the New Testament, one in Hebrews 13, it says, remember your leaders, for those who spoke the word of God to you, consider their way of life and imitate their faith. He says in verse 17 of that chapter, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are, here's what they do, keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Your elders and pastors will give an account before God one day for how they oversaw and shepherded the people and the ministry. It's a heavy weight to carry. But let them do this with joy, not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So peaceful life in the church while we wait to ensure the church is healthy and peaceful and, and uh, doing what Christ has called it to do, it requires that our overseers will take their calling seriously. The second thing is that our members will respect their leaders highly. Our members will respect their leaders highly. Now, I know this sounds incredibly self-serving. I get the tension about being able to speak this, but it's there. Let's look at those very same verses now through the lenses of the people. We ask you, brothers and sisters to respect those who labor among you. Respect them. And esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, apparently in this church, some were not doing this. They were not being appreciating their, uh, their leaders. And so he exhorts them to adjust their attitude. To respect is uh, maybe a better word, or it carries the connotation of appreciating, respectful appreciation, um, to take notice with a view of, of respecting them, to esteem them highly in love because of their work. Paul is saying that when believers understand what spiritual leaders in the church actually do, love should well up within our hearts for them and because of their sacrificial work that they do. We are to esteem them very highly, to hold them in high regard, to value them and appreciate them. Why? Because of the essential and significant work that God has entrusted to them, because we acknowledge the weight they carry, and because of the blessing we receive when they do so. You know, from a pastoral perspective, one of the things that most of you never face is when you go to work at the school or at the hospital or at the marketplace or wherever you go to work, you don't bring your whole family there. It's one of the challenges of being a pastor is you bring your family with you. And that's one of the weights that we carry. So going back to our Hebrews passage, it says, remember your leaders. Remember. Call them to mind. Imitate their faith. Obey or submit to them, for they are watching your souls, keeping watch over them. 
Let them do this, church, with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's interesting, you would think that it would be saying, because that would be no advantage to them. Actually, it's no advantage to you when their oversight, because of your actions or reactions or attitudes, causes them to groan. So, brothers and sisters, I know this message cut against, cuts against the grain of our culture. It really does. That our culture seems to see dissing leaders as a badge of honor. It applauds almost mistrust in leadership these days. I personally know and understand the frustrations of being in disagreement with overseers, believing some decisions were misguided, feeling that the personal pain of their unwise words or actions, and they will give account to that before God. I am also not naive enough to, to know the fact that I, too, may have been the cause of others' pain or frustration or bewilderment. And I will stand before God and give account for that. Every leader in the church, they know the weight of this. And if not, they're in it for the wrong reasons or they're just arrogant. While the text, please understand, is not saying, here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that you can't ask questions, that you can't address behavior or disagree with the direction. It's not saying that. Arrogant leaders, insecure leaders would force everybody into it with not let anybody ask a question. That's not saying that. It is instructing us about the important role they play and how those who have not been called to be leaders in the church should look upon those in authority over them. Does that make sense? Okay. I won't belabor that. So, here's the third way that the church will be at peace and thrive while waiting for Christ. Not just that overseers do their role well and take it seriously. Not just that members respect their leaders highly, but that other people will love one another genuinely. Our people, everyone in this room, and those who are watching online, they're called some at their home. It's when we love one another genuinely. Be at peace among yourselves, he said in verse 13. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. Now, it's a challenge to the whole church. Some might argue that this is actually addressing just the leaders to keep doing this. But most commentators believe it's the entire church that is called to this. This is life together. Be at peace among yourselves. Paul is saying that peace can be result when love increases, especially between overseers and congregation members. It strengthens the church and the whole experience. Admonish the idol. The idol is a word that typically meant to re, not to remain in one's place. They're out of order or undisciplined. The picture is that of a soldier who steps out of order and goes and acts in an unbecoming way. Any church member who has ungodly behavior was threatening the unity and the integrity of the church, they were to be admonished. 
In particular, if many commentators think that this includes a group spoken of in 2 Corinthians, or Thessalonians chapter 6, verse 3, verse 6 on onwards, where he was exhorting the congregations to avoid a brother or sister. These were the ones that, hey, Jesus is coming back. They quit their jobs. They didn't take responsibility. They were busy bodies, stirring up contention in the church, living off, sponging off of everybody. And they didn't respond to the word. So they were to admonish the idol those that are living like that, undisciplined in their faith, breaking their commitment to God and to one another. So Paul instructs them, idol, the idol, admonish them, exhort them, challenge them, confront that behavior with the intent that they become a part of this community. That they, he talks later, he says, you know, you know they should work. Don't sponge off everybody all the time just because you think Jesus is coming back and you're lazy. I recognize that people are out of work for all kinds of reasons, but he's addressing a specific reasons why here. So this, if, you're, if you happen to be out of a job right now, this is not addressing you. Please understand that. It's those who choose to live in an idle, irresponsible way, stirring up contention, being busybodies, he said in... Second Thessalonians. So we are to admonish the idle. Secondly, to encourage the, we, the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. Literally, the word means to be small of soul. That is, they're, they're discouraged. Their hearts are souls of shrinking. They're faint-hearted. Some in the congregation might have been discouraged because of the trials and the persecution that was going on in that region of the world at the time. Some of them also were grieving the loss of loved ones that he talked about in the earlier uh, sections of this book. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word used here is, refers to a lack of patience, endurance, or confidence in the face of such trials. So in Exodus 6, where the people would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit during, because of the harsh treatment they were tre- being treated with as slaves. In Isaiah, he uses this word to describe people having weak hands, feeble knees, and anxious hearts. Isaiah 54, describing the feelings of a wife who has been disowned, abandoned, and left by herself, deeply grieved in spirit. Isaiah 57 describes a people whose hearts and spirits need to be revived. You see, their faith needs to be built up by the strengthening, encouraging ministry of fellow Christians. You don't exhort or admonish those who are faint-hearted. That's not the way we respond to them, to help them. Charles Swindle, a pastor, says, wrapped in an affirming word, a gentle touch, a smile, a shoulder to lean on, or maybe our, just our very presence. He says, too often we isolate ourselves. Like strangers in an elevator, we feel uncomfortable making eye contact or speaking politely to each other when we see people discouraged or when they are in front of us. But in the family of God, he says, these things must be different. Let's free ourselves to connect with one another, particularly the discouraged who need to know that someone cares. 
We encourage the faint-hearted by our prayers for them, our words to them, serving them, comforting, blessing them with our presence. Everyone in this room carry hurts from our past or present. We have present struggles and sometimes fears of the future. And most often, or a lot of times, people can overcome these and function well. But sometimes they get the best of us and we become discouraged. So we don't need to be rebuked and warned like that. We need encouragement and help. He says, not just admonish the idle or encourage the faint-hearted church, we are to help the weak. Now remember, this isn't just a pastoral duty. This is for all of us. You and I, have, you have contact with people in the congregation. You know. And so it's not inappropriate for you to go in love and admonish the idle or to encourage the faint-hearted and now to help the weak. Now, it could refer to those whose faith is weak. They're spiritually weak, so we're to lay hold of them and don't abandon them or let them go, but strengthen their faith, help them. It could also refer to those who have a lack of strength in some physical way in comparison to others. Maybe they're sick or lame or blind or economically destitute. So Paul encourages the entire church to be aware and in the midst of this to take overt measures to connect with them and meet their needs. Neglecting such can lead to divisions and discord. Remember in the church in Corinth, the well-to-do were there at the love feast and they ate their fill, took their best seats in the place while the poor didn't and they went away hungry. And so he exhorted them and challenged them. That's not the way we deal in the church. And then he says, be patient with them all. I mean, you need patience to admonish the idle, encourage the weak and help, or the faint-hearted and help the weak. Everyone in the church, we need patience. You know what it's like when, if impatience rules. It's not a place that cultivates peace. He goes on in verse 15 to say, See to it that no one repays evil for evil. Church, while it's hard to do, and while it cuts the grain, against the grain of our nature and our culture sometimes, Jesus' followers are called to be slow to anger when someone offends us and leave the root for forgiveness. We sang that song today. Jesus' way is different than the world's way. And we must resist the urge to fight fire with fire. In a parallel passage to the book of Romans, Paul affirms this teaching of Jesus and its countercultural alternative. He says, bless those who persecute you, Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Do not repay evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. For God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay so to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. 
And scholar, historical scholar Leon Morris, a commentator, said it was the early church's radical practice of not returning evil for evil, but to return evil with good, love and forgiveness that made a significant impact in the spread of Christianity in the ancient world. It's powerful. Now, the next verses I preached on at Thanksgiving, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. I want you, if you haven't heard them, you can go back and you can uh, watch or listen to them on the podcast or on, on YouTube. But I would just say this, that our church, if we're going to live peaceful while waiting for Christ, our church will live in the Spirit devotedly. Live in the Spirit devotedly. And he's talking about how the Spirit is involved in all of this. So rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Joy, prayer, thanksgiving. And when we do so, it changes everything within the context of a church. And we see that how joy and prayer and thanksgiving affect peace. Remember the passage in, in Philippians chapter 4? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be know, laid, made known to everyone. Uh, the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. You let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which, under, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Practice these things, verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. Prayer, joy, these things, giving thanks, help us to live at peace. Lastly, he says, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You see, the Holy Spirit's presence, not just in filling us and leading us, he who is joy, uh, leading us in prayer and thanksgiving and worship, but here, the Holy Spirit's presence and power and ministry is essential to create harmony in a congregation. Remember in Ephesians, he said, be eager to maintain the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Despisement in the sense of to treat with contempt or to look down upon. Now, before we go any further, I just need to say something. I want to be clear about this. That the New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy, the prophetic, is not the e equal to the Old Testament office of prophet. Please understand that. The spiritual gift of prophecy, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, is a gift of the Spirit that he sovereignly distributes to the church for the purpose of edification, exhortation, and consolation. That is, one speaks a prophetic word to edify or strengthen, to encourage or motivate to action, and to comfort or console. As Wick Warren says, to build up, stir up, and cheer up. That's why the gift of the prophetic gift in the New Testament, that's what it's about. It's not about addressing kings and foretelling the future most of the time. 
And he will often manifest his ministry through impressing a scripture, a phrase, a word, or a picture to a believer, an elder, a pastor, or the body that will edify, encourage, and comfort another person, a group of person, or the whole church. Now, some churches that believe that the spiritual gifts ended with the apostles and the writing of the scripture choose to believe that this refers purely to preaching the word of God. Now, it may include that. Sometimes the prophetic is often comes across. The fourth telling of God's word. And in a sense, this morning, this is a prophetic word to the church, isn't it? The fourth telling of God's will and word to the church. But Paul is saying that one of the ways the spirit is quenched in a church is by stifling his prophetic ministry. And, the, and he's really talking about especially the content of these words. But to keep harmony in the church, we're not to despise, not to overinflate, not to ignore, not to force the acceptance of prophetic words. We are to test everything. If someone says, I have a word of God, from God, we're to test that. Test the content to examine it closely for the purpose of determining the source of that and whether or not what is spoken is in alignment with God and it applies to the present situation to encourage, build up, and console. So we are to listen and discern with spirit-led biblical discernment and then endorse and receive what is discerned to be good. That's what he's saying. Hold fast to what's good someone has a prophecy, you discern that, you test it, and if it's good, hold it. Receive it. If it's not discerned to be good, abstain from it. Just let it go. <laughs> now, I know this calls for a whole sort of evening session, teaching Q&A and all of that, and we could definitely do that. But just don't despise prophetic words out of fear or shut it down because you're afraid of kookiness. The scripture is very clear. Just test it. And those who give prophetic words, don't be put off when other believers ask to take time to test it. Hold it loosely. Give it without demanding a response. If you don't receive, if they, if they don't receive some of it or all of it, you Perhaps you heard wrong. Are you perfect? It happens. Maybe it was incomplete. Or sometimes God may show you a prophetic word or give you one just so that you will pray. If they do receive a prophetic word, the Spirit will be honored, the recipients are blessed, and the church is strengthened. Now, I know prophetic ministry has all kinds of dangers associated with it. But the response ought not to be just to shut it down completely. As Rock Dilliman from Allegheny Center Alliance Church in Pittsburgh says, the answer to false fire is not no fire. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul instructs the church to handle prophecy in an orderly way that ties the, uh, ties the reason to the same overarching theme as it does here in Thessalonians. For God is not the God of confusion, but of peace. 
You see, peace is so important for the church as we wait. Lastly, our God will sanctify his church faithfully. You know, for our church to be healthy and at peace, focused on what God calls us to be, our overseers will take their calling seriously. The members respect their leaders highly. Our people will love one another genuinely. The church will live in the spirit devotedly, and our God will sanctify his church faithfully. It's a wonderful promise. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. God is the only perfect source of peace. He possesses it, he's the origin of it, and he enables it to be put into practice as he inspires us. He himself will completely do it. He will sanctify you completely. God's sanctifying work is, just, is the means by which he gives grace, and it's to be thorough. body, soul, spirit. He doesn't suggest that just a reasonable amount is required. Oh, I'm good enough. I fit in. I can have enough religion or enough Christianity to sort of not draw questions, but I'll just live in this comfortable state. No, 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 no. God's plan is to sanctify you. That means to purify you, to set you apart as holy, to transform you into the person personal character likeness of Jesus so that you will be used for his purposes. And that work, he will never, ever quit until he returns. So, let's just skip along. He who calls you is faithful. He's you know, we are held in existence by the Spirit, maintained by truth, and not by human effort. God is faithfully at work in us, and we will be faithful to and will be faithful to accomplish his purpose, complete the holiness of God bit by bit, one degree of glory to the next, until he comes and we see him face to face, and we will be like him. And that is a wonderful promise. He who began a good work in you will complete it. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, causing you to will and to do his good pleasure. We who are in Christ live in a responsive relationship to God who is always initiating, leading, and enable us to obey, and we respond by working out what he is working in to us, and he will never quit that. Amen? I'm so thankful for that, because I have a lot of work to be done on me yet. Do you? I was going to say, turn to the person next to you and say, you got a lot of work to be done yet. <laughs> Go ahead, tell them. <laughs> now turn and look it back and say, so do you. <laughs> yeah. Friends, uh, I ran out of room. I could have said, as the next verse says, you know, greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. This could be... <laughs> This could be like the most ignored commandment in the scripture, especially in the Western world and the Eastern world. But you know why it's important? Can I, this is an add-on for free. It's not just some sentimental practice. 
Did you know that Paul exhorts the church four times here in Thessalonians, Romans 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Peter 5. Do you know why this is so important? Because it's underscoring that the former antagonistic barriers that a culture sets up between gender, male and female, race, Jew and Gentile, social rank, slave and free, rich and poor, have been broken down by Christ's work, and we are to express this new unity in Christ. Therefore, greet one another with a holy kiss. Rich doesn't ignore poor. Black doesn't ignore white. Whatever ethnic race we come from, and we all have ethnicity, the level field at the foot of the cross in this new humanity Jesus is making. In the Greco-Roman world, such a kiss was a sign of a close familiar relationship, and also at times, it was a sign of reconciliation between those who were battling. So again, this indicates that all diverse people groups in Christ are part of this newly constituted spiritual family who love and are at peace with one another. So warmly greeting one another in this manner also not just does that, it helps to create an environment of worth, warmth, love, and unity in the church. And it helps to surface issues that need to be worked out because when you know, you know this, don't you? You walk into a room with you have tension with someone and your natural reaction was to greet warmly people and you have got tension with someone, suddenly it surfaces things that need to be worked out. Church, some of you may be cringing about what I say is the application. Don't worry, I'm not going to say it. So everybody kiss one another. <laughs> some cultures kiss I learned that from our Iranian brothers and sisters. That wasn't like new to me, right? It was like well, either side and especially sometimes three. It's awesome. Some hugging is appropriate. Some you just bow and nod. Others you shake hands. Others you just smile. But 25 years ago, before I started this church, I made a commitment in my heart. Because one of the key things I watched in the growing up in the church and my father as a pastor and a dis district superintendent was the lack of love that I would see in churches sometimes. And I made a commitment that I would be setting an emotional tone in this church. Some of you think it's just the way I am. Partly that's true, but the others, it was very, very intentional. While I'm learning better to discern what might be appropriate in various cultures, and sometimes I still fail at that. I must join Paul in exhorting us that within what is appropriate to various cultures, what is acceptable to various personalities, and what is respectful to marital wishes, we must all work at greeting one another with warmth and brotherly love so that it's palpable in a church. Wouldn't it be just amazing that this church had the reputation that its people and its place was the most loving place in York region. Okay, I've really extended myself. So last, just again. Overseers, take your calling seriously. Members, respect your leaders highly. People, 
Love one another genuinely. Church, live in the Spirit devotedly. And we trust and know God will sanctify His church faithfully. So we come to the end of 1 Thessalonians. It's been a journey calling us to live holy lives, distinct and increasingly in an increasingly hostile word, world. But our hope remains firm in the return of Jesus, which enables us to live in love, peace, and joy until that day. May we become what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul calls us and enables us to become. Let's pray.